0: Welcome back, everybody, both here in Sacramento and uh, our friends online. Uh, This morning you heard from a lot of politicians uh, talking about poverty in California, but at Cato, one of the things we resolutely believe in is the power of civil society to solve so many of our problems. So we're going to transition this afternoon a little bit more and talk a little bit more from people who are outside of politics still be talking about policy in many cases, but, uh, but we are going to hear from people who aren't necessarily in office. And first up on that is Peter Manzo, who is president and CEO of the United Ways of California. Uh, when it comes to nonprofits and folks uh, helping their neighbors, United Ways is one of those groups that's really done a tremendous job uh, in dealing with people who need help in California. And we can't think of a better perspective than someone who's been on the front lines and leading this fight to help reduce poverty and inequality in California. So, Peter, I'm going to turn it over to you. Peter's going to handle his own questions. I just remind you that you can submit your questions online uh, through any of our segments, um, YouTube, uh, Twitter, uh, using the hashtag CatoCalifornia, Facebook, and on our our official Cato webpage as well. So thank you all very much, and you'll bring your questions in. And Peter... I'm going to turn it over to you. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Michael. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, Thank you all for uh, inviting us here to speak. Um, uh, As Michael mentioned, I'm the president and CEO of the uh, United Ways of California, which is the state network for California's 30 United Ways. Um, I'm really excited to talk with you about the recommendations that are in the report, Um, but I think it would be good to, if you don't mind, Give you a little bit of uh, information about the United Way network and what we do, so you know where we're coming from. You can kind of assess, you know, what our biases might be. Um, so, all right. So, United Way advances the common good in communities across the world. Our focus is on education, income, and health—the building blocks for a good quality of life. Uh, I, I'm going through this because a lot of pe- people know the United Way brand. They may not necessarily know what we do. They think, well, you do something good, it's roughly good, but it's kind of hard to figure out what exactly that you do. Um, And this is what we do. We focus on advancing opportunity for families to be healthy, to get an education, and to be financially stable. Mary Wollstonecraft uh, famously wrote, it is justice, not charity, that is lacking in the world. And we agree. I mean, our goal is to try and and bring about change so that people can be agents of their own lives. Um, So we believe that everyone deserves a chance to build a good life. Uh, Simply put, people must have access to health care to ensure good health in order to learn. People at all ages must have opportunities to learn in order to sustain themselves and their families. And people must have pathways for earning a decent living and building financial stability for their families. So that's why, again, we focus on those three building blocks, education, income, and health. What that means in practice is is that we work with leaders in just about every sector in a community, business leaders, labor leaders, community residents, civic and public officials, and nonprofits and and folks like um, other uh, collaborative nonprofits, to help identify one of the most promising or sorry, one of the most pressing problems in a community. help organize everyone to try and solve that problem. So in virtually every case, that means we work to expand opportunity for poor and low-income families and individuals, just about everywhere. And we're in about 1,000 communities across the United States. uh, Another couple things to mention about United Way, every single one that you run across is an independent nonprofit. So we're a network. We all share the same brand, the same values, the same uh, mission but we're independent and we're responsive to our local community. Our board members are drawn from the local community and the local community helps to decide what it wants to focus on. So uh, let me just mention a few examples. Uh, Across the country, 350 United Ways provide free volunteer income tax assistance through the VITA program, which you may have heard of. Stands for Voluntary Income Tax Assistance. And it uses volunteers and increasingly free online filing to help low and moderate income people file their taxes, and very importantly, to connect to the Earned Income Tax Credit. This is gonna be very important here, it's prominently mentioned in the report. Here in California, 19 United Ways support over 700 VITA sites, uh, providing free in-person tax prep and online. And since 2009, you know, we've helped to put literally billions of dollars back into the pockets of low-income working families. 2-1-1, Two one one, one which you may have heard of. Has anybody here heard of 2 one Okay, there's a couple. So two one one is a very important free resource. Um, it's information and referral, uh, really assessment and referral for people who need help looking for food, shelter, home health care for a parent, an after-school program for their kids. 2 one uses that three-digit dialing code to connect people to resources in a community. Uh, 24 hours a day seven days a week Um, there are 243 two-on-one providers across the country about half of them are operated by United Way Another quarter are funded by United Way here in California There are a dozen United Ways that operate two-on-one serving 22 counties And then we fund our local United Ways fund uh, most of the two-on-one serving all the other counties in California United Ways also across the state are involved in uh, fighting homelessness and increasing affordable housing, access to affordable housing. So we see that work, for example, going on in Los Angeles, Orange County, Ventura, Santa Barbara, the Bay Area, Stanislaus County, many places. And I'll try and um, sprinkle a few more examples in as I go. In education, many of our members focus on early grade reading and also early childhood. If you're not reading by third grade, if you're not reading at grade level by third grade, you're on a path to not graduate from high school. So that's why we focus on early grade reading. Um, And that work is being done, for example, in Santa Barbara at a very high level um, and a few other places. We also fund and participate in efforts to advance racial equity. Um, So there's some really good work that our United Ways are doing around that. Um, in Northern California, in Santa Cruz, in San Luis Obispo, uh, in Fresno, and a few other places. So I mention all that just to give you a sense of what we do. What we want is for people to have the opportunity to build a good life. And that's one of the things that we really uh, agree um, on around this report. There we go. All right, so I I wanted to highlight this because, you know, if, if... if we agreed on nothing else, and, 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 and if you heard me say nothing else, this is the point. This is the, this is the point behind the report and we're so happy to see this. Um, uh, Michael and your team, thank you for putting this together. Um, the report clearly says that California's anti-poverty policies should imp- ensure that people have their basic needs met, but those policies should also enable every Californian to become a fully actualized being capable of being all that they can be. So that's a very, that's a prophetic statement, right? You know, that is the goal. We're not, uh, as I think, um, Michael, you may have mentioned this morning, we're not just trying to make people less miserable. We're trying to help them flourish. We want them to thrive. Um, But we think that in order to do that, um, we need to get a little better grasp on um, the struggles that uh, low income and working families have. Uh, the report uh, relies on a lot of great data from the California poverty measure which is put out by the Public Policy Institute of California and Stanford University. It's great. Um, but if you'll indulge me, I want to just share an alternative view about how to, how to look at um, the struggles of, of low-income families. So we think that in order to um, help families live with dignity, to gain agency, and to be upwardly economic mobile, upwardly mobile, um, we need a measure that identifies what thriving or flourishing looks like, that points the way to a decent standard of living, right, and what that would cost, because we all know it's very expensive to live in California, for example. So we produce a study um, where we do, uh, we look at the household budgets for a particular family type, and every family is different. Um, and we look at the inputs for that family budget, you know, uh, housing, food, childcare, healthcare, health care, transportation. Um, miscellaneous is everything else. It's, it's where you pay for your mobile bill or mobile phone bill or cable. Um, taxes. Everyone has to pay taxes. Um, and we put together household budgets for different family types because every family is different. And this is something that we think that is missing, for example, from the federal poverty level. And then we look at what does it cost a family of a different, different configuration to afford a decent standard of living in a particular community. So without going too far into the numbers, what you can see here in this chart is that um, it's almost twice as expensive for the same family to live in Contra Costa as it is to live in Fresno. And some of the big barriers, big, big changes are around housing, it's almost triple right between Fresno and Contra Costa um, and childcare goes up by uh, it's 150% more in Contra Costa than it is in uh, Fresno and those are just a few hours from each other right it's the same state um, but we need to be able to to look at families and see who's struggling another thing that we want to pay attention to is the life cycle so if you have two adults and with no kids you know, they have one type of household budget and, you know, they can probably get by with, a, you know, with with all, not very much. If you throw kids into the mix, though, all of a sudden, if you're having children, like a an infant or a toddler um, or school-aged child, your costs go up significantly. Or at least the cost that we would want you to be able to afford, right? We want children not to grow up in poverty. I'll mention this a couple times. There's, there are estimates that Um, child poverty costs the U.S. about a trillion dollars a year, right? So what are we doing to make sure that children don't grow up in poverty? So using that measure, right, rather than measuring how much money people don't have, when we measure how far or what what people earn from what they need to have to meet a decent standard of living, um, the picture's... uh, quite different, we see one in three households in California fall below this real cost measure, right? So when we talk about poverty, it's not just people that meet the official federal poverty definition or even the California poverty measure, but low-income working households, right? They struggle, we all know this, right? When we do these presentations in our community, we usually start by asking people, how much does it cost for a typical family? Rent, you know, food, all those things. And afterwards, they end up having numbers very similar to ours. Because we know this, we know it's an expensive uh, proposition to live in California, and we want to try and help people. This is what it looks like in Fresno, that red bar is the gap between um, what the average family that earns below the real cost measure earns, around 38,000, and what they need to meet what what we would want them to have as a decent standard of living. And we show that not to depress anybody, right? But just that's something to aim for, right? That's the problem we're trying to solve is that red bar, right? We're not just trying to get people above the blue bar. We want them to thrive and flourish, and that's what we think it looks like. This map shows what it looks like in California. You're probably familiar with these maps. you ever looked at a map of California and income? This pretty much um, follows that, right? So again, Contra Costa, San Ramon Danville has the lowest percentage of households that live below the measure, 11%. Um, In L.A. County, southeast L.A., East Vernon has 80 families. Eight out of 10 families in that neighborhood um, earn below the real cost measure. Um, When we look at this by uh, race and ethnicity, um, people struggle at different rates. And it's very important to break it out. So African-American or black households struggle at 41%. Asian-American households at 28%. Latino households at 52%. One out of every two Latino families in California struggles to meet the cost of a decent standard of living. Native American households struggle at 39%, and white households struggle at 21%. When you look at the numbers rather than the percentages, um, it's very important to look at that as well. Uh, The largest set of struggling households in California are Latino, 1.7 million. The next largest set, though, are white households at over a million, right? And sometimes we forget in the media reports and so on, we, we may tend to think that, um, that poverty is largely a, a problem for people of color, and it's not. Um, and this is even more true if you look at poverty across the country. Now, this, one, this statistic I wanted to mention because we think it's very important. You often hear people say one out of four children in the country are growing up in poverty. Um, in California out of those households that have children, zero to five, young children, over half of them live below the real cost measure. So children are our future, and half of the children in the state, roughly, are growing up um, in financially constrained circumstances. Um, I show That's almost a million households, and I don't have a slide for this, but um, our data also show that seven in 10 households led by a single mother also earn below the real cost measure. Okay? so. Um, now, we're going to talk a little bit about housing in a minute. Um, nearly four in 10 households in California pay at least 30% of their income on housing. Now, the federal government says that's about as much as you should pay. If you're paying more than 30%, you know, the old rule according to HUD was that's too much. We don't want you to pay more than a third of your income on housing. 40% of Californians are doing that. And when we talk to, if you look at the American Community Survey data, people that live below the federal poverty level, right? So um, that's below, say, twenty-two thousand for a family of four. They report spending as much as seventy-five percent of their income on housing. Right, so that kind of chokes off everything else. If you're, you know, if you're trying to stay healthy, uh, if you're trying to help supplement your child's education, where's the money for that going to come from? Um, this is the map that shows the uh, concentration of households that are paying more than thirty percent. Um, all this information is on our website. It's. Uh, www.unitedway.sca.org slash real cost, R E A L C O S T, and there's interactive dashboards there. Um, so that's kind of what the picture that we want, that we keep in mind. We're not just worried about people that below the federal, fall below the federal poverty level, we're worried about people um, who are above that. Right, who don't get a lot in public benefits, but are struggling to, make, to, to, make a, 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 to afford a decent standard of living. Now getting into the report, right, here's where we're gonna get into the report and the recommendations, which again, um, very happy to see the overall philosophy behind the report. This one jumped out at us, right? There are 24 recommendations. Number 20, uh, we totally agree with, um, cash is king. The report recommends at number 20, prioritize cash payments within the social welfare system over in-kind benefits or indirect payments to vendors. To the degree possible, restructure existing social welfare programs and reallocate existing resources into an expanded state EITC. We completely agree with that. I'm so happy to see that report. It reflects a lot of the work that we've been doing over the years, right? Um, As Michael and others mentioned, when you give people cash um, you're treating them like adults and they are quite able, they know what their family needs and they're quite able, uh, capable of spending that money responsibly by and large. Um, we also, this may be a little bit of inside baseball, um, we, are, uh, we work to advance and I'll give you some more examples of it in a minute to um, uh, drive support to low income working families and we think the tax mechanism works for that. Why would you create something new when you already have a mechanism that works? Um, so we're really, really pleased to see that as well. So um, now let, let me not get into housing for a second. Um, just real quickly, um, at full disclosure, I'm not a libertarian. I'm learning a little bit about libertarianism um, and the, the recommendations in the report. I might sum them up as, and I don't think this is fair, in a nutshell, it's removing government rules and practices um, that inhibit mobility, right? Getting government out of the way. And we agree with that. Um, Our take on some of these other things might go a little, be a little bit different. Um, You know, we wanna look for ways that uh, nonprofits, business leaders, community leaders, and government can work together to affirmatively do things that help, right? Not just get out of the way, but help. Um, Let me say a quick word about uh, the role of nonprofits in philanthropy. Um, Part of the reason I work at United Way is that as a community-based nonprofit, we have more flexibility to respond to variations in local communities and their needs more flexibility than government does, which has to kind of have a rule that's even steven, right? One size fits all. We can tailor responses to what a particular community needs. And that often means that at many things we can be more efficient and effective at providing community services that lift up all people to become their full selves and thereby improve the economy for all people. It's also why I appreciate the decentralized nature of United Way. We share the same mission and values but we believe a a local community and a local United Way knows much better what their community needs than we could ever decide from some central office, right? But to be honest with ourselves, we also know that philanthropy and nonprofit efforts are not enough to solve many problems at at significant scale. There needs to be some role uh, for us all to work together in partnership and often through our government to attack some large problems at scale. Let me give you two, um, let me check the time, two quick examples. Um, In California, well, maybe I should stop. I'm gonna move ahead. Uh, I'm not gonna talk so much about us and get to the thing. So housing, Um, we like the housing recommendations. Um, uh, Most of them are focused on land use. Um, And the thing that we would say is, Those would work if they can be implemented, but whether they can be implemented is a huge question. Local control of planning decisions is a religion in the United States, practically. It's very difficult. There was a mention this morning of SB 8 and SB 9, uh, which were passed, and those are good things, right? They are helping to make it more likely that we construct more affordable housing. Um, But it might take a while. Those took years to pass, and what are we doing in the meantime to help people now? Uh, And from our perspective, we'd like to see, back to Cassius King, more support for renters. As a a country, we spend $3 subsidizing homeownership for every $1 that we spend supporting renters. So we would like to see more funding go to renters. Also, the problem of homelessness. When we're talking about chronic homelessness, right, um, they need permanent supportive housing and, and some wraparound services. So market changes in housing may not help those people. Right there. Um, so we need to think about how to provide uh, permanent supportive housing for them. A bright spot I would point to, it's controversial sometimes, is in Los Angeles. United Way of Greater LA is helping to drive a $5 billion initiative there to permanently um, house uh, the chronically homeless. And I would mention one other initiative in Orange County. The United Way in Orange County is having great success working with landlords to move people in using Section 8 vouchers. They found that the vouchers were undersubscribed. Landlords didn't necessarily, didn't feel comfortable taking them, but through a partnership together, they can really increase the uptake and get more people into housing. On education, uh, really quickly, tuition tax credits and private schools, um, that sounds good. Um, we worry that, the, that private school spaces are not abundant and that implementing that might not get to the scale we need. Um, there are, hundreds of thousands of low-income students that are struggling now. We want to help them right away. So one bright spot that we would mention is that there's a new community schools initiative that, um, was, that we helped to pass, um, and it's going to put $3 billion targeted at creating partnerships between communities and schools to support low-income students. And we think that's going to have impacts at a, at a much greater scale than others, and we're really excited about it. And early this morning, I remember Michael mentioned, one of the things we most want to see is more parental involvement in their children's education, right? And this is a way to do it, where the schools and communities work together and ask parents, what do you want for your kids? What are your aspirations? How can we work together to make sure that all your needs are met so that when your child walks to the door, they're ready to learn. That's it. Everything else, we ask teachers to do too much, right? They should only have to teach and not deal with everything else before kids walk in the door. Uh, child care, I want to uh, d- discuss real quickly. Um, deregulating child care makes a lot of sense, especially in terms of the competition a- angle. Um, but again, at scale, um, we don't have nearly enough spaces for the number of children that we need. Right. So as a society, we have to decide whether we really want to make um, child care universally affordable. Uh, we think so. We would advocate for that. Um, It's a cost that I think we can afford when you compare the cost of not having it. You always have to underwrite underwrite the cost of doing nothing. And right now, as I mentioned earlier, I think it's a report from the Peterson Foundation, says it's a trillion dollars is the cost that we pay for child poverty. And childcare is a way to help uh, do two things, right? It it supports the healthy development of that child, makes them, their lifetime earnings are higher, and their achievement is much better if they have high-quality child care. It also enables the parents to either go back to school and build their skills or to offer more hours to the workforce. It helps to stabilize what the parents are doing. So to sum up, there is so much in this report. It's over 77 pages. I'm still seeing things. I've read it twice. Um, we really support the spirit in which it's, it's produced, and most of the recommendations we agree with, um, uh, and so I think starting with that f- first end in mind that we want to actualize people, we want them to be their full selves, if, if we start there, I think we can make some good things happen. Thank you and I'll be ready to take questions. Yes, sir. I was amazed at your Asian uh, numbers. Uh, on poverty. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that. Um. Yes, well, um, the, what we need to do, and, we, and I gotta apologize, it's something that we, we intend to do soon, is actually de- segment right the a- API, Asian Pacific Islander population, because it's it's not a monolith. They're, you know, uh, my wife is Japanese American, you have uh, Chinese Americans, you have people from the Pacific Islands, they're all very different, right? Um, A lot of our United Ways, for example, in the Central Valley, um, the Hmong population there uh, is very uh, prominent in farm working and they're very low income and they have, so when you start to slice it that way, it might explain the numbers a little. Uh, I hope that's responsive to your question. Oh, yes, ma'am. Over the last, let's say decade, what are the big shifts that you've seen in terms of need? Has has there been um, new things that have grown and other issues that have not been as demanding as they were? Mm-hmm. Or has everything just grown? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm afraid that the, uh, the answer is everything's just grown. Um, but if I could, you know, just a couple bright spots I'd like to mention, right? So, um, again, cash is king, right? And so one bright spot is, it was is mentioned in the report, um, we now have a state earned income tax credit. And so our United Ways across the state helped to push for the creation of that credit. And then every year we've pushed still for the expansion of the credit, right? I think the report mentioned, I think Michael mentioned, There's much more room to grow. That credit is now putting a billion dollars into the uh, pockets of working families across the state. And it's capped at $30,000 annual income, which is one full-time minimum wage worker, right? The federal earned income tax credit doesn't cap out for a family of four until the mid 50s. So there's plenty of room if the state can afford it to increase that, that's a bright spot and we think that that's working. Another one I'll mention really quickly if I have time is Cal Savers. So we want to encourage people to save, and we supported the CalSavers program. It's a um, state-supported retirement program. It's a public-private partnership. All the investment management and so on is done by a private entity, right, that is under contract with the state. But the problem it's trying to solve is we had seven million workers here in California that didn't have access to retirement savings in the workplace. And if, if you, any of you are saving through your payroll deduction, you know it's a really effective way to save. You kind of set it and forget it, right? And before you know it, the money starts to pile up. And if you start early enough with compound interest, you can really save a fair bit. So the CalSavers now is is providing that benefit to seven million workers that didn't have it before. And we think that there's a lot of potential to take that model and do other things with it. Um, Just one more second. At our table, we were discussing the changing nature of work, right? And this is a problem that uh, is gonna affect not just the people living below the real cost measure, but many people who um, live above it. Uh, It's gonna become increasingly hard, that is a point that we're seeing, um, for people to get 40 hours of work. Many of the families that we work with, they're working two or three jobs, right? And but their income fluctuates, they might be 20 hours one week, 30 hours the next, 15 the third, it goes up and down, right? And so somehow we have to figure out a way to smooth that that's one thing that we could do. The other thing we, we need to think about is 40% of the labor force, roughly, people that are working are working in some sort of contingent work like that. Often they, get, they, they don't get any benefits. They're not getting prorated uh, vacation. They're not getting prorated health care. The employers are getting the benefit, but they're, they're not. We could think about using those, those portable uh, accounts like Cal Savers to try and solve that kind of problem.